I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Daryl Leeworthy, who is a historian and who's just written a book, a weighty tome, which is called Labour Country, Political Radicalism and Social Democracy in South Wales, 1831 to 1985. So where are you from, Daryl, originally? Ah, long story, Martin. I was born in western Supermare, and like a lot of the, the guys in the book, uh, my family moved across to Wales at the end of the 1980s, and I grew up in Anisabal, a little village outside uh, Pontypridd, um, with a fine old record um, which appears in the book a few times. And how did you become interested in becoming a historian? Oh, this actually this goes back to when I was in primary school, and my year four primary school teacher, Michael Allen, he used to take us on a trip to a park which had been provided for by the, the miners years and years and years ago. And this was in the early 1990s, and he wanted to just my generation to know about what had once been in that village. So we used to take up up to this park and point out where the pit had been, where the co-op was, all of these other things so that we knew a little bit about them. And somewhere along the line, that story that he told must have stuck in my head and uh, has always been there, been guided by these ideas of the past and um, how the present is related to the past. And of course, my gran grew up in Scotland in the 1930s, and so she told me stories of the Depression up there. And so it kind of built up to be just sort of this thing that I could never get away from, and so that's kind of what I still do. Because the book has got actually a great sense of place. Yeah. You write about the valleys, about the characters who were responsible for forming uh, the trade unions there, for uh, developing the kind of politics uh, mm. of the valleys uh, over over decades, of course. Um, and I guess that your politics, or the kind of politics that you write about, is very much rooted in that particular part of Wales, isn't it? Yeah. And I know that you make a bit of a thing, actually, that you actually refer to this in the book towards the end, where you take issue with those people who will not put a capital S on South Wales, yeah, because you see South Wales and particularly the valleys as a very distinct area, don't you? Yeah, and that's also something which comes out at the time as well. So it's it's a response, partly from my own point of view, but also from the sense that that is how someone in 1900 or 1930 understood their world, and Iron Bevan did not understand South Wales as a lowercase question. He understood it as a, a capital letter problem, which could potentially then convince others out there that there were alternative solutions to contemporary problems as he understood them. That whole question of tradigorizing the National Health Service. There's a certain pride in that capital letter, which, okay, the grammarians have gone, well, it doesn't read, where is this big South Wales? Well, actually, that big South Wales did exist. It is there. You can still see some last vestiges of it. We sit here, obviously, today in the centre of Cardiff. But the centre of Cardiff, now slightly different from the valleys, one time its wealth was made up that 12, 14, 30 miles away, wherever direction we have to head in. That is South Wales. And if you were to pick up a newspaper 100 years ago in 
Estonia or Norway or Iceland or Australia or America, they knew where South Wales was too. So we lose something, I think, by rejecting that sense of place and imposing contemporaneously and on the past a lack of place, a lack of connection, and this, this idea that South Wales and North Wales, to be fair, if there is a capital S, there has to be a capital N too, have not got traditions which make them slightly different from each other and from the rest of Britain as a whole. So let's think and let's try to define exactly what South Walesness um, amounts to. Yeah, I guess we're talking here, in a sense, about. Uh, I mean, the book starts in 1831, or that's the figure. That's the time that you you put onto it. We're almost talking because we're talking in terms of uh, industrial society. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a sort of year zero thing, isn't it? Really, very much so. Yeah, um, and 1831, of course, is a it's a grand reference to that Merthyr Rising. Once called the, the Merthyr Riots, but it got upgraded by Gwynalf Williams to become a rising. What was the significance of that particular event? This is the first time that the red flag is raised uh, in a community, in Britain actually, it's the first time. And it is the first time where Wales' first true industrial town, Merthyr Tidville, its working class recognises that it has become something distinctive and has particular needs that make it a working-class community, as opposed to a, a farming and peasant community, say, or a, an artisanal community. But there is clear divisions between the coal owners and the iron masters, capital, if you like, on one side, and the workers on the other. In that very old-fashioned Marxian binary system, but that is to some extent, how it became understood later on. Obviously, Mark, this is before Marx has been writing, a slightly different period. But nonetheless, there is clear demands as ordinary people, if you like, in Merthyr Tidville and Dowlet, and the villages around in 1831, which manifests itself in that symbol of the red flag. And of course, as we know, the red flag then becomes something very much more symbolic over the 150 years or so that uh, the book covers Slightly more than 150 years, but there is a reason for that last date on the on the title as well. What's um, uh, one of the interesting themes of the book, central theme of the book in a sense, is that while you can have, I suppose, a very simplistic narrative of working class people as victims of mm. uh, oppressive capitalism, nevertheless, what you do is trace the way in which representatives of the working class, both through their trade unions, particularly the South Wales Miners' Federation, and also by their gradual move into and taking over of municipal Wales, if you like, or municipal South Wales with a capital (laughs) S, and to create a different kind of society to the one which the ironmasters and coal owners, etc., would seek to impose on them. How did that kind of alternative society develop? Yeah, well, it... It comes in a couple of different ways. There's an intellectual tradition, which is not necessarily always natively working class, if that makes sense. There are lots of ideas coming through. There are people reading Marx in translation. I should say that the translation is into French, not necessarily into English or Welsh, at least at the beginning anyway. There are people reading materials coming in from the continental traditions as well. We forget sometimes that South Wales and thus Wales as a whole, 
was made by immigration. And those migrants, yes, a lot came from England, a lot came from Scotland and Ireland, but also a considerable number came from Europe and brought European uh, political traditions with them. We might come back, perhaps, to the Spanish community in, in Merthyr and Daulas in a bit. So you have these intellectual traditions. But then you have practical considerations around wages, around being taken advantage of by company stores, being taken advantage of by rogue landlords. The big, a big campaign in Merthyr Tidville the end of the 1890s was around council housing and the way in which the ironmasters conspired with their representatives on the council to vote down a bill which effectively would have meant that Merthyr Tidville would have then been able to start building council housing. And so even though that's not the thing that really tips the balance in terms of the Labour movement becoming more powerful, it is part and parcel of that debate that they're having, that we can't rely on these people any, anymore to act in our best interests, that we must act on our own terms. And of course you have charismatic figures, yes, Keir Hardy um, coming in as MP, but you also have locally charismatic figures as well. Uh, Mabon, William Abraham uh, from the Ronda would be an obvious example. Later years, you have Esso Davis up in Merthyr Tidville as well, or Noah Ablett, or A.J. Cook, all of these folks who are key figures in their own rights, but they're also charismatic figures who are able to galvanise issues and able to line those issues up and show that they're all connected. So people can be agitated by lack of housing, poor food and poor access to low wages and things like that. But until those issues are brought together, then it's, it's harder to make a movement out of them. So within the labour movement itself, there became something of a conflict between two opposing views of how things should go. You had the, uh, as I think you might describe, impossibilists. These were the idealists mm -hmm. who were just oppositionists, if you like. Yeah. And uh, uh, I mean, they wanted probably to have some sort of instant revolution or whatever. Yeah. But against that, you had what was, uh, as it turned out, the stronger tradition mm -hmm. of what you describe as radical pragmatists. Yeah. These were people who were looking at the circumstances, looking at what they wanted to achieve, and did what they could within what was possible in order to achieve social improvements and to, to create things as mundane, if you like, as leisure centres, yeah. uh, as well as working men's club and institutes, which weren't just drinking establishments by any means, but they had uh, libraries, and mm. you had this, this tradition of working people actually having uh, access to learning and being very enthusiastic about that. And that was yeah. all nurtured by this sense of radical pragmatism, wasn't it? Yeah, this is it. This is, and this is really why it is a, a Labour country. This is the real heart of that debate, that Labour goes through real, and the Labour Party, I mean, goes through real moments of weakness in the interwar years. In 1931, of course, it's kicked out of power, loses enormous numbers of seats. It is Labour's lowest ebb of all, except in one part of the country, and that is South Wales. And if you were to look at an electoral map in 1931, there is one blob of red which stands out over and above all of, all of the others, more so than the northeast of England or London or Glasgow, where 
these traditions are also thought to be very strong. South Wales is the one. But why? How does that hold up when it falls everywhere else? And it is because of the radical pragmatic position that Labour comes to. It was not always guaranteed that it would come to that position. There had been huge debates, and this is partly what Tonopandi is all about in 1910 as well. Well, there was a huge lockout. Exactly, it? yeah. And Winston Churchill sending in the troops and that sort of stuff. And, and all that clash with the state, which makes you question the idea that are these people really reformable? Um, should we just not get rid of the whole lot and start all over again? Of course, in Russia, which is where this debate takes place, some of its inspiration from, that's what they did. They were able to overthrow uh, the old state, but then had to build a new one. And was it necessarily of the character that the idealists had in mind when they started off with? The radical pragmatists who were gained power in the early 1920s, some, as, some councils turned labour as early as about 1912, they have a choice to make. We have to look at out for the people that have put us in power. But we also have to deal with the consequences of economic decline and quite stark economic decline in a way that we have some familiarity with in recent times. We have to make choices about what we cut. There's a huge austerity program implemented from central government in the early 1920s. We have to deal with unemployment at a rate that is in some places upwards of 80-90% sometimes. We have to deal with emigration. We have to deal with poor housing. And housing is a really major issue because the private sector is non-existent. There is no private sector housing at all in Wales, particularly in South Wales, in the 1920s and 1930s, except in the leafy bits of Cardiff and, to a lesser extent, Swansea. And they have to deal with all of that. And how do you deal with that? You can reject central government completely. And you do find some legacies within the records where the Labour councils are writing quite honestly going, Whitehall has no love for us. We understand this, but we still have to deal with them. The impossibilists on the other side are going, well, of course they hate you, but you should hate them too and you should, we should try and overthrow them. But that leaves people vulnerable to all sorts of things. There are cases in the records of authorities being threatened with shutdown, authorities being literally taken over. The whole Bedwesty Board of Guardians case is just quite famous. And this comes to head again in Merthyr Tidville. It's, there's something about Merthyr which makes them the, the rebel's edge of the South Wales area. It comes down to school fees, interestingly enough. Merthyr Tidville decides that it's going to be the first council in the whole of the country provide secondary education for free. And they're told by Westminster that if they do this, if they do not charge fees for secondary education, they will be got rid of. And they'll put sort of commissioners in. Another familiar story from recent times. And Merthyr says, no, that's wrong. And they eventually debate and they think, okay, right, we'll come up with a radically pragmatic solution. We will charge fees, but only to those who can afford it. And you would think that unemployment in Merthyr is 70-80% at that time. The number of people actually paying their school fees in Merthyr are very small. But they'd won the point, which is that we can be pragmatic, but we can also be radical in our choices as well. The impossibilists would have 
stuck to the guns and rejected the idea of charging a fee, which would have caused all sorts of problems and potentially opened up the local government position in Merthyr and other councils in South Wales to even worse conditions. So this is how they hold that strength a little bit. We might think of it as a fudge today, looking back, but it, it worked. And then also... Um, there was the ability of these uh, municipal socialists to actually build uh, things like leisure centres, mm. which it's easy to say these are quite trivial things, but in fact yep. they were central to to the people's lives, weren't yes, they? And absolutely. they added considerably to what they were able to do. Yeah, we often think of politics as not being about the mundane questions in people's lives. And even that word mundane makes it sound like not a not very nice thing. But we really mean about the fundamentals of someone's existence. There's a great line from one of the miners' welfare reports all about a park system in Adaronda. And it says, well, if green spaces can be provided for aristocrats, then why can't they be provided for the sons and daughters of miners as well? And this is really what it's all about, that social democracy, if it means anything, it means genuinely improving people's lives across the board. It doesn't just mean the headline figures of housing and jobs. It means leisure as well. We must remember, I think, that throughout the end of the 19th century, there had been a big campaign, eight hours campaign, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will. And those eight hours for what we will include library time, learning, leisure, sport, cinemas. Those big institutes had libraries and cinemas and pool tables and all sorts of other things in them. And the debate chamber, of course. What direction are we going to take these things in? So they were a great symbol of the fact that social democracy in South Wales as a whole meant both improving conditions at the coalface or in the steelworks or whatever the, the metaphor we take, but also improving people's general lives. Because it wasn't just men that were involved here. It was an entire community. And this meant birth control clinics. It meant better information about how to manage families. And it meant if they were on strike and you can't afford the butcher's bill, maybe we should think about how we can make vegetarian meals we might think that's a little of an odd side effect but at least it meant people could live and survive through the hard times whilst not having to be beholden to credit all the time and it also meant that leisure was a fundamental aspect of what has been lost really the built heritage of this whole phase of our existence has been largely lost. The thing that remains are the parks. It's the great irony that it's the parks, the most mundane feature of the whole social democratic network that survived to our times. One of the things that struck me when I was reading the book was that whereas other historians would probably concentrate a lot on the post-war Labour government of Attlee with the nationalisation of the mines, the uh, introduction of the mm. NHS and all that sort of stuff, you're actually looking at a, at a rather earlier period, aren't you? As yeah. the, if you like, the 
I don't know if I if it's appropriate to use the term the golden age of social democracy in South Wales, but, yeah. but where the kind of collaborative municipal enterprises that mm. you write about were very much to the fore, because even by the time of the post-war uh, Labour government, you were in a situation where the number of people employed in the mines was considerably going down. There were an awful lot of mines which which closed, and I guess that that had a knock-on effect in terms of the kind of communities that existed in the uh, in the South Wales Valleys. Yeah, absolutely. The golden age is is actually quite a nice term. I think it's it's a nice way of summing up that interwar period where things worked despite the great hardship of the times. But the post-war period saw the exhaustion to a large extent of old mines. That was inevitable. That was whoever ran the mines that was going to happen. Saw the changing nature of employment as well, particularly with the opening up of factories like Hoover's in, in Merthyr. But also this change in habits that we'd gone through all the bad times and the bad times were connected because we all worked in one place so I don't want that for my child I don't want them to go into the mines I don't want them having that association necessarily I remember my grand telling me the story of my grandfather's experience and he grew up in the Garrow Valley in the 1930s which is interesting because obviously Ponticummer is on the cover there which is nice uh, that region of the of the South Wales area. They'd grown up in that area. He got an offer to come and study at Treforest at the School of Mines to study metallurgy. Uh, he would have been the mining engineer or something like that. But his mum said, no, 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 you must have nothing to do with mines because she'd seen that decline in the 20s and 30s. She didn't want her son to be affected by the same turbulence. And that discussion has been had quite a lot elsewhere as well. So by the time we get to the early 1960s, you find a lot of careers officers and, and folks like that who are dealing with young people coming out of school and going, well, what am I going to do with my life? Which is you know, a story that's familiar to today as well. And they go, well, I don't want to go into the mines. I want to do something different. Or I don't want to work in the necessarily by the 60s necessarily work in the factories making all sorts of things from glasses to to shoes to whatever it might be i want to really try and do something different with my life and of course that helps fuel a, a mini revolution in higher education which changes the complexion of labor later on it's really in the 1970s that that is turned on its head that mining suddenly becomes a more stable industry again but you've had that economic change already. And once you've opened that economic change as a possibility, it's hard to close down Pandora's box again, isn't it? And they really did struggle with that idea that we've opened up opportunities and now we're only thinking in terms of heavy industry again. Yeah, heavy industry is the thing that leaves us vulnerable to major economic turbulence. How do we resolve the economic problem, which is central to the South Wales question since 1945. And that has yet to be resolved. Well, yes, there is, uh, towards the end of the book, you've got um, a narrative which becomes quite elegiac in a sense, Mm. because you're talking about a situation where the mines have shut down, uh, there isn't really any substantial employment to create that, and we're all aware now of the kind (laughs) of devastation which exists with 
you know, young people with few aspirations in many mm. in many cases, a lot of drug taking that goes on. What would your solution to the valleys be now then? Oof, there's asking the question. <laughs> um, it's a it's a difficult one. I think one feature in terms of the past is the fact that things were rooted locally. That sense of place is fundamental. And that sense of place hasn't really faded, despite all of the other things that have gone on. Firm sense of place is what's important. Yet these days, we're now being encouraged to think in terms of city regions, which is an idea which has some economic value, but it struggles in contrast to some of the other ideas which are still very powerful in valleys communities. And with this idea that we, we need to shuttle down to a central point, to shuttle home again to, for our eight hours of rest or whatever it might be. And this division between the place that we live in and the place that we work in has grown considerably over the last generation or so. Whether that changes with technology uh, in the sense that more people can work remotely and so therefore don't, can live and work in the same community, who knows? But we must be careful that not to over-egg that, because of course as mines closed in the 50s, 60s and 70s, those miners who remained had to travel to the pits that were there, so there was a lot of travelling around in any case. But how do we overcome that problem of place? Or how do we embrace that question of place, which is the better solution, I think, that when we are planning economic systems, we do need to understand that sense of place, that ability to root ourselves in a particular community and to be able to grow those communities so that we don't always have to travel into a city for everything. So that we don't always, if we live in, you know, somewhere north of Taft Well, say, have to always travel into Cardiff or if we live in the Delice Valley or something that we always have to travel into Swansea. That these cities are important, yes, but they're an even partner in um, rooted communities further north. That's the thing we have to solve. Historians are particularly notorious as not very good predictors of the future, but that's the problem that they solved years ago with those municipal centres which were strong and had things to service the communities. That's really what we're missing now. And that brings me on to another obvious question mm. which derives from the book, which is that you don't seem wildly enthusiastic about devolution and what it's been able to achieve for communities like that. Do you think that there became a point where uh, people in the Labour Party became, shall we say, constitutionally obsessed as opposed to wanting to actually do pragmatic things to help the communities and that that has been a huge diversion? Is that is that how you would characterise it? Yeah, I think... They've been caught in the headlights a little bit of nation building as a constitutional question that there is a Wales, therefore it can be defined and we must be engaged in that definition. But my personal point of view and having then done the research around these big questions is that Wales is grown from below not from above. It, can't, it isn't a constitutional question, it's a question of communities and peoples and places. That half of the argument has been, has 
been the lesser of the two over the last 20 years. And it comes back to the same question that we had just a minute ago about how do we resolve contemporary economic questions that we grow Cardiff, not everywhere, all the other places as well. And that's also the imbalance that's existed within devolution. Cardiff is now completely distinct from the rest of the country because it's a central power. So when we have the same discussion about London is the central power and so it sucks everything in, Cardiff is the central power and so it draws a lot in to the detriment of other places. The thing that has been problematic with devolution overall is that it has ended up accidentally, partly accidentally, but not necessarily or entirely accidentally, mirroring the very thing that it did not want to be, which is the imbalance between a central power and everywhere else. Devolution, if it's to correct itself, has to be more grassroots orientated, has to be more community orientated, and has to recognise actually that all those communities have different shades about themselves, that they have different histories and different reasons for existing, and they can't all be made into a singularity, which is part of the point I was trying to make at the end, which is that just because people try and work together does not necessarily mean that they lose sight of the fact that they have things which make them themselves, if that makes sense. That there is a complexion which is Pontypridian, there is a complexion which is from Neath, there is a complexion which is from Abitaleri or whatever. We can have common themes and common goals, but those complexions make us from those places. That's something that devolution has lost, I think. There was a sense in the book very much of uh, the valleys and South Wales as a powerful entity. I didn't get much sense of Wales as a nation there at no. all. What, what, what do you think Wales is? Ooh, good question. For me, Wales is an idea that people can subscribe to, but I don't think it's necessarily an inherently essential part of us. There are things which mark us as distinctive from other parts of Britain, other parts of the UK as a whole, other parts of Europe and the world. But we have an awful lot in common with those other parts as well. And those commonalities are more significant, I think, than the things that we hold to be distinctive in terms of a national character. And I did my master's research in Nova Scotia and I did a lot of research in the former Cape Breton coalfield and I was wandering around I was with fellow researchers looking at what was going on all of the same problems of deindustrialization, all of the same problems of deindustrialization in mining communities very many of the same problems in terms of isolation and peripheral positioning in the sense that Cape Breton is right on the edge of the Canadian uh, land mass. I did not feel out of place there. It felt the same sort of community. So you could have lifted up Sydney and dropped it on where Pont is and it would have had the same features and effects. Minus a couple of tweaks because obviously Sydney is a port city rather than a, a central valleys era town. That diminishes this national identity for me. 
Um, those commonalities are more important. We have to come up with common solutions to both of them, which are lost if we stress consistently this idea that there is there is this nation which is distinct and we must hold to those distinctive characteristics. We're past that, I think. We, we, we can move on from that and move on from those senses of division. doesn't mean we lose sight of our distinctiveness, but we must lose sight of that division and that artificial border between places. That's my radically pragmatic response, Martin. <laughs> We've just had a Welsh Labour leadership election and Mark Drakeford has been um, elected, the new First Minister. Would you describe him as a radical pragmatist? To some extent, yes. I think he has often worked in behind the scenes. As we know, he's been behind the scenes of devolution from quite a long time ago. I hope, and this is my great aspiration, if I almost certainly would have voted for Mark had I been within the fold at the present time, and I know a lot of people who did vote for Mark on this basis, that there's something in his political makeup and his character which more than the other first ministers that we've had so far with possibly the exception of Rodri right at the beginning that he's able to understand that the grassroots are more significant that the communities people come from are the key to change and we heard a lot about change in the electoral cycle everyone was all about change but I think Mark Drakeford's idea of change actually had some sense of place within within it. And that's what I hope he expresses. That I hope actually he is able to genuinely transform the devolution process, turn it around, turn it upside down in some respects, have that revolution in inverted commas that some of his supporters have been hoping that he would do, and make devolution something which speaks to everybody. Give us all a reason to invest in it, beyond just the fact that it exists. One of the ideas that he has put forward is that there should be some new arrangement backed up by legislation which would force employers who have contracts with the Welsh Government or who get grants or other financial assistance from the Welsh Government to sign up to, if you like, um, a fair employment mm. programme, which would entail paying people decent wages and giving them uh, proper conditions in terms of yeah. not having zero-hours contracts, etc. And he argues that that would be a creative use of the devolution settlement. Very much so. Do you see that as a, as a, as a positive? Uh, very much so, yes. Having been on the raw end of zero-hours contracts myself... There are a lot of them, and it isn't just necessarily private business which is uh, implementing zero-hours contracts or part-time hourly paid work, which is effectively a zero-hours contract in a sense. If that is to be a meaningful piece of legislation, it really must look at the whole economy, including a lot of the institutions which have got away with implementing zero-hours contracts because our focus has been on the likes of the big companies like Amazon or whatever it might be, and I don't want to just single out any individual company here. Our economy and our local government as well, to be quite honest with you, is based on this 
fairly exploitative principle of zero-hours contracts to really transform things. And this comes back to my point about recognizing grassroots concerns and recognizing grassroots communities. We need to pull everything apart and really start that process again. That bill has the potential to do it if it is meaningfully implemented right across the board, from business to local government to education to, uh, and to other sectors of the economy as well, then we are in a position where we really have changed things. If we only focus on business, the local councils who have zero-hours contracts, the universities who have zero-hours contracts, they get away with it again. And businesses, quite rightly, would turn around and say, well, why are you picking on us? Just finally, I wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned earlier, which you alluded to, we might talk about later, which was, if you like, the inter internationalization mm -hmm. of South Wales, where we had at one time many people Absolutely. coming in from countries like Spain. And at the time of the lead up to the Spanish Civil War, there yeah. were an awful lot of people who came over, weren't there? What did they add to the valleys as a distinctive region? Yeah, well, it, the Spaniards in Dallas particularly added. I was saying earlier, this whole new intellectual tradition. And they had two, actually two intellectual traditions coming through with the Dalai Spaniards. One of which was Spanish anarchism, which has an interesting flavour of all of its own. The other was connections into Spanish social democracy. And the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, who are now obviously in government in Spain. Those traditions brought in and fused into the local labour movement in Dalai and Merthyr and made that instinctively internationalist. So there is a peace conference held in Spain in 1915, and one Welsh community is represented at that peace conference. That is Daulais. It is a, an anarchist attempt at resolving the First World War, but nonetheless, it is a peace conference in a town called El Ferrol. The journalists who happen to represent the Daulais branch at that peace conference then wrote the obituary to Keir Hardy for the French and Spanish socialist newspapers in the autumn of 1915. Hardy's would-be successor, James Winston, travels all around British, then British Empire, so he goes to major conferences in Canada or trade unions. Again, an international connection. But if we then look at the labour movement here in Cardiff, and this is the real interesting side of things, is that the old South Ward, which used to cover most of Butte Town, uh, for the real geeks out there, that ward became a heavily labour ward because it was recognised that through labour we could change people's attitudes to race and gender and other identities that are now very much more to the fore. And indeed, we look in the records in Cardiff University of the Trades Council, and they are talking about representing that first generation of bus drivers. We know a lot about Bristol's bus drivers and Birmingham's bus drivers, but Cardiff had bus drivers from BAME backgrounds as well, who face many of the same forms of discrimination from conservative-led administrations in the council. And it was the Labour trade union representatives who stood up for them and said, no, 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 this is wrong, we will help look after you. And so those internationalist traditions did slowly transform the ways in which the Labour Party recognised, and the Labour movement more in general, recognised that 
They were just about a group of miners. They were about everybody as a whole. And we shouldn't be surprised about this. Because if we look at the records of who were the colliery doctors in parts of the Ronda at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century, there were two doctors from Delhi and Mumbai working in the Ronda as the colliery doctors. One of them, Dr. Datta in Ferndale, actually helped set up the Ferndale Workman's Cottage Hospital and did a lot of what the NHS later did. And so he was known in the language of the time, if we look back at an old edition of the Western Mail, he was called, and this is, we be aware of the language of the time, a god of, in ebony, that he was so respected by the local folks in the Ronda that, yes, some of the racial discussion, because it was commonsensical in inverted commas at that time, would have been expressed. But nonetheless, they recognised that there was this community and harmony between both sides. And I think that, to me, those stories remind us that there are many more things to explore within the history of Labour country, but also that identity questions that we are now much more concerned with were always integrated into the history of the Labour movement and how we came to live in the place that we do. Daryl Worthy, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Daryl's book, Labour Country, Political Radicalism and Social Democracy in South Wales, 1831-1985, is published by Parthian. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Mm-hmm.